Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the night of April 17, 1989, cult leader Jeffrey Lundgren ate dinner with his followers in the dining room of their communal farmhouse in Kirtland, Ohio. Among them were Dennis and Cheryl Avery and their three children, Trina, Becky, and Karen. Trina was 14. She got good grades in school, though she still slept with stuffed animals. Becky was 12, had an outspoken personality, and made friends easily. Karen was 6, always giggling, and had a slight lisp. She was picky about her food that night, refusing to try the corn on her plate. The group started eating dinner a little after 6 p.m., Dennis was a slow eater, but by 7.30, everyone was full. However, by 11 p.m., the entire Avery family would be dead. Their murderer was sitting across the table. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. This is our second and final episode on the Kirtland cult, started by Jeffrey Lundgren as an offshoot of the RLDS Mormon Church. Lundgren eventually convinced his followers to kill an entire family for him, including three children. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. A lot of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. The Kirtland Cult was started in Kirtland, Ohio in 1987 by Jeffrey Lundgren. He was a member of the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or RLDS. Lundgren, 37, formed the cult around his assertion that he had come up with a new and correct way of interpreting Scripture, eventually convincing his followers that he was God's last prophet. He died in 2006, and the cult no longer exists. In the first part of our two-part episode, we heard about Jeffrey Lundgren himself— how he grew up with demanding parents and met his wife, Alice, while failing out of college, how he was fired from a series of jobs for stealing, and how his religious views began to differ wildly from those of the RLDS. Today, we'll broaden our focus from Lundgren to the cult he founded, the Kirtland Cult. We'll learn how Jeffrey convinced his followers to help him commit murder, then leave civilization to clean themselves of sin. In 1986, 36-year-old Jeffrey Lundgren was living in Kirtland, Ohio, with his wife Alice and their four children, Damon, Jason, Kristen, and Caleb. He was volunteering as a tour guide at the Kirtland Temple, while he and his family were financially supported by his first followers, Kevin Curry, Sharon Blunchley, Danny Craft, Richard Brand, and Shar Olson. By this time, Jeffrey believed that he was an immortal prophet— He attempted to prove this assertion by using a technique called chiasmus. He had invented the technique and used it to cherry-pick sections of the Bible and Book of Mormon that supported his radical ideas. 
Chiasmus is a process of interpreting text by finding phrases that are similar to each other, or mirror phrases, then looking at what's in between those two phrases. Because God created man in his mirror image, the theory is that whatever is between the two mirror phrases are God's own words. Jeffrey gained popularity by capitalizing on a schism within the RLDS church. More liberal members were at odds with fundamentalist members, who found a leader in Jeffrey. While not all of the fundamentalist members of the RLDS church joined Jeffrey's cult, he was still respected within the larger community. The liberal members stood by Reverend Dale Luffman, who was a salaried employee of the RLDS church and oversaw 12 congregations in and around Kirtland. Jeffrey despised Luffman's liberal viewpoints, including that the RLDS priesthood should ordain women. He repeatedly called Luffman a liar in the classes he taught to fundamentalist members. Despite this, Luffman was unable to discipline Jeffrey because of Jeffrey's support from the sizable fundamentalist faction. By February of 1987, Jeffrey had recruited Dennis and Tanya Patrick, Greg Winship, and Dennis and Cheryl Avery into the cult, Although Jeffrey vehemently hated the Averys, he saw Dennis as weak, the worst kind of man, who was always deferring to his wife. This was somewhat of a pattern for Jeffrey and his perceived place for women. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here. She's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. Regardless of where you fall on individual feminist issues, most people generally agree that women deserve equality. Jeffrey, however, is what Dr. Barrett Brogard would call textbook misogynist. This is a condition where a man believes that women are wholly inferior to men and should act in a way that he deems appropriate for a woman. Misogynist viewpoints often develop out of low self-esteem and can be indicative of other psychological disorders. Oftentimes, men who feel inferior seek to control others, in this case, women, to feel important. This also goes hand-in-hand hand with Jeffrey's narcissistic personality disorder. Jeffrey constantly made fun of the Averys to his other followers. Richard Olson once overheard Jeffrey tell Alice that the only reason the Averys were there was, quote, so I can have their money. Jeffrey also taught private classes to his followers, including his now 16-year-old son, Damon. All of Jeffrey's followers either lived with the Lundgrens or nearby, and all gave Jeffrey their paychecks. The expectation was that Jeffrey, whom they called Dad, was paying everyone's bills, including rent and car payments. In the spring of 1987, Jeffrey began to assert a new kind of control. He said that the names of all of his followers were hidden in the scripture, along with the names of their true companions. In other words, he was going to tell his followers who they should date. According to Suzanne Deggs-White, a counselor and professor at Northern Illinois University, narcissists try to exert control over others because of their own fragile egos. They also don't possess a capacity for empathy, so Jeffrey didn't give much thought to whether or not his followers were happy with his matchmaking. Jeffrey's first foray into matchmaking was with Richard Brand and Sharon Blunchley. Sharon was actually happy with the match, but Richard was disappointed. He didn't consider Sharon attractive enough. But Jeffrey said the match was in the scripture, and if it was in the scripture, it was the word of God. So Sharon and Richard began dating. 
During the summer of 1987, Jeffrey became obsessed with a new interpretation of a passage in the Bible. He claimed that by using chiasmus, he had determined, quote, I am the last messenger that God has sent to the Kirtland Temple to prepare the way for Christ's return. And the reason why he has called you here is because you are going to help me protect it, end quote. According to more mainstream Christianity, Christ's return would be precipitated by the end times, or apocalypse. After the apocalypse, Christ would reappear on earth in Zion and take his loyal followers to heaven, condemning the rest to hell. This further revelation meant that during the apocalypse, he and his followers would be tasked with guarding the Kirtland Temple for Christ's return. He said that during this time, quote, we will have to live off the land and we will have to protect the temple by whatever means possible. We must be ready to fight and die. We must be ready to shed blood and there will be lots of it spilled, lots and lots of it, end quote. To that end, Jeffrey and his followers started stockpiling survivalist gear, including tents, food, and military-grade guns. His followers thought they were doing something noble, like they were soldiers in Christ's army. At the time, Jeffrey was teaching Bible study classes both at home with his followers and at the RLDS church. Jeffrey saved his most extreme teachings for his devout followers, but Reverend Dale Luffman was still frustrated by Jeffrey's fundamentalist teachings in his more general classes at the church. In the end, though, it wasn't Jeffrey's teachings that got him kicked out of the church. It was his stealing. In July of 1987, church officials did a regular audit of the Kirtland Temple's financial records and noticed there was almost $21,000 missing. They knew it had to be Jeffrey, as he was the only one with access to the funds, being the church accountant. One in a series of misjudgments about him, clearly. But without any hard evidence, they couldn't press charges and let him leave quietly. Jeffrey lost his volunteer job as a tour guide at the temple, as well as his church housing. He told his followers that the church was scared of the truth that he was teaching, and that's why he'd been kicked out. To Jeffrey, this was a sign that he and his followers should form a commune and set off in search of a new space for them. By late September 1987, Jeffrey had rented a farmhouse at 8671 Chardon Road in Kirtland. He would live there with his family and Kevin, Richard, Shar, Danny, and Sharon. The Patricks, Averys, and two new followers, Ron and Susie Luff, would live in their own apartments nearby while still financially supporting the commune. At first, life on the commune was happy. Shar Olson said, quote, I feel a real sense of belonging. I really felt like we were becoming a family, end quote. Shar was also pleased that Jeffrey had found a partner for her in the scripture. It was Danny who was equally happy about the match. Jeffrey began to hold classes every night at the farm. Only the Averys didn't have to attend because Jeffrey didn't like them. The classes would be two or three hours long, unless someone questioned Jeffrey. Then they would last several more hours, with Jeffrey berating the person until they fell in line. Everyone at the farm had chores in addition to their paying jobs, except for Jeffrey and Alice. Jeffrey didn't have to work because he was a prophet, and Alice because she was the wife of a prophet. Since Jeffrey controlled the money of all of his followers, they would have to ask him if they wanted to buy anything. Usually he'd tell them there wasn't enough money. But it seemed like he always had enough to spend on his own family. Like when Alice didn't like what one of the followers had made for dinner, Jeffrey would go to Red Lobster and get a shrimp party platter. 
Lundgrens would eat it alone together in their bedroom. But after only a couple weeks on the farm, Jeffrey became dissatisfied. While he had control over his followers, he missed the attention he'd gotten while giving tours and teaching his classes at the church. As always, he claimed to have found an answer to his problem in the scripture. Jeffrey said that he used chiasmus to uncover a new meaning in a section of the Book of Mormon called the Parable of the Vineyard. The parable is generally interpreted as a comparison between the pruning of an olive tree to the constant difficult work of atonement. But Jeffrey decided that God was telling him that the vineyard in the parable was the Kirtland Temple, and what he needed to prune was the wicked people who had taken control of it. In his view, those wicked people were Dale Luffman and the RLDS Church. He told his followers, quote, God is commanding us to take over the Kirtland Temple. I am the destroyer. We must destroy the wicked who are now in control of the temple if we want Christ to return, end quote. His followers believed Jeffrey and began to prepare for the temple takeover. As Dennis Patrick said, quote, I had always believed in the scriptures. They couldn't be wrong, and everything Jeffrey showed us came directly out of the scriptures, end quote. Jeffrey primed his followers for the takeover by showing them war movies like Apocalypse Now and focusing on the more violent sections of the Bible in which an avenging God would kill the wicked. He told them that not only would they have to kill the people in the temple for Christ to return, they'd have to kill anyone who lived within a one-block radius. Christ wouldn't return if there was any wickedness nearby. Alice would later claim that she thought Jeffrey wasn't serious, but other followers would remember her strenuously backing up his ideas during this time. Kevin Curry said that Jeffrey would make a proclamation, and then Alice would, quote, rush in and convince everyone that what Jeffrey was saying was the truth, end quote. Jeffrey had 11 adult followers at this point, and the only ones who weren't in on the plans were the Averys. Jeffrey told his followers, quote, the Averys are so stupid that the first they will know about the temple takeover is when they see us on television inside the temple, end quote. Jeffrey kept them around because he wanted their money. But after the apocalypse, they were on their own. Jeffrey also picked out a date for the takeover. He said that he had interpreted symbols on the front door of the temple to mean they were supposed to attack on May 3rd, which made sense because that was also Jeffrey's birthday. Jeffrey also told his followers that just as Christ had 12 disciples, only 12 of his followers would survive the takeover. At this point, that meant about half the group would be killed. This claim was a way of sowing division and distrust within the group, creating a competition over who was pure enough to be one of the 12. There was only one of his followers who didn't believe Jeffrey's claims, Kevin Curry, his old friend from the Navy. Jeffrey had said he was immortal, but Kevin observed how much pain Jeffrey was in when he developed a kidney stone. Were immortal beings even supposed to get kidney stones? Kevin realized, quote, We were feeding off his fantasy, and he was feeding off our fantasy. And together, we were creating an even bigger and bigger fantasy that was beginning to take on a life of its own, end quote. On February 17, 1988, Kevin decided to get out. He was scared of Jeffrey by this point. He knew the group had been stockpiling weapons and was ready to use them. When he went into work that morning, he left his car and headed to the bus station. He didn't tell anyone, even his own mother, where he was going. Jeffrey was furious. 
When he realized Kevin wasn't coming back, he said, quote, Kevin's as good as dead. I'm going to track him down and kill him, end quote. Being deserted by one of his followers showed weakness, but Jeffrey eventually rationalized that Kevin would be killed in the apocalypse triggered by the temple takeover, so he'd be dead soon anyway. By mid-April of 1988, Jeffrey had added another tantalizing part to his vision of the takeover. He told his followers that they would all see Jesus Christ in person after they took the temple. The group also added another member, a cousin of Jeffrey's named Debbie Olivares. Debbie had recently gotten divorced and was intrigued by Jeffrey's promise that he could find her a new mate in the scriptures. He told her, quote, You will never have a normal relationship unless I help you. You will never find the man you want. I am the only person who can do that for you. End quote. She moved into the farmhouse, and Jeffrey declared that Greg Winship was Debbie's true companion. Meanwhile, in Buffalo, New York, Kevin Curry began to get nervous. He was in hiding, but the date of the temple takeover, May 3, 1988, was drawing closer. He didn't want to have blood on his hands, so he decided to report the takeover to the FBI field office there. The agent who took Kevin's statement didn't find him to be very credible. Kevin told crazy stories about a prophet and some vineyard, so the agent foisted him off on the local authorities in Kirtland. On April 28, 1988, the agent called Kirtland Police Chief Dennis T. Yarborough. Yarborough had been raised in the RLDS church, and though he was no longer actively involved in it, he had heard of Jeffrey Lundgren before and knew that he had started some kind of commune. Yarborough believed Kevin's story, but since the FBI didn't, he knew he would have to compile some hard evidence if he was going to pursue it. Yarborough decided to speak to Jeffrey in person. He asked Jeffrey down to the station and told him that they'd had complaints about paramilitary groups in the area and asked Jeffrey to keep an eye out. He wanted to let Jeffrey know that they were on the lookout without causing Jeffrey to take any violent action. For the next few nights, Yarborough and his men staked out the temple, but Jeffrey and his followers didn't appear. It seemed Yarborough's warning had worked. They didn't realize that Jeffrey was about to construct a new plan, one that he'd carry out to grisly ends. After this quick break, we'll follow that plan. Now back to the story. At the beginning of May 1988, Chief Dennis Yarborough became aware of 38-year-old Jeffrey Lundgren's plan to attack the Kirtland Temple. Jeffrey got spooked and grew concerned that the police would ruin his plans, but he couldn't let his followers see his fear. He was supposed to be a prophet, after all. So, instead of telling his followers about the police warning, he told them that God said they couldn't take over the temple because his followers were unclean. Jeffrey proclaimed that they'd have to wait to take over the temple until May 3rd of the next year. But Kevin was not the only one with doubts. A few days later, Char Olson got a call from a creditor that said she was late on her car payments, even though Jeffrey had told his followers that he was paying their bills. Char was deeply irked. Jeffrey had gotten them hyped up for the takeover, then called it off. He'd also forbid Char from seeing her family, and now he was dipping on her car payments. This was the last straw. At the end of May, Char left the group, leaving her boyfriend Danny behind. Jeffrey was worried. He had told the group that Char would be one of his 12 disciples, and if one of his claims turned out not to be true, his followers would begin doubting the rest. 
According to neuropsychologist Dr. Rhonda Freeman, narcissists will lash out aggressively if they feel even slightly undermined. Shar leaving the group was a huge blow to Jeffrey. So to bolster his own ego and make sure the rest of his followers stayed in line, Jeffrey began bringing a pistol to class. But by September of 1998, Jeffrey's followers were antsy. Two of the members had left the group, and Jeffrey had called off the temple takeover. Jeffrey felt he had to regain control. He told his followers, currently numbering 29 members, including children, that he had consulted the scripture, and it had told him that in order for him to take his followers before God, he had to become endowed with the power. In order to obtain said power, he had to kill the wicked and offer them to God as a blood sacrifice. The scripture also told Jeffrey that the wicked people had to come from his own flock. And it was clear to Jeffrey who the wicked ones in his flock were, the Averys. The Averys hadn't been coming to class at the farm much because Jeffrey didn't want them there. Nevertheless, the Averys remained loyal to Jeffrey. Jeffrey said that it was because he gave them a chance to feel special, saying, quote, They believed that Jesus Christ wanted them to be his disciples. Can you imagine them as his disciples? But they believed it was true because they wanted to believe it was true. And as long as they believed I could take them to meet God, then they were going to follow me, end quote. Jeffrey didn't hate only Dennis and Cheryl Avery, but their daughters, Trina, Becky, and Karen, too. He thought they were badly behaved, though his followers later remembered them as sweet girls. Still, Jeffrey was the leader, and if he treated the Averys badly, so did the rest of the group. Outside the group, Dale Luffman was still trying to take Jeffrey down. Jeffrey had already been asked to leave as a tour guide at the temple, but Luffman managed to get Jeffrey officially excommunicated from the church on October 10, 1988. Chief Yarborough was also gathering information on Jeffrey, but wasn't working with up-to-date intelligence. He interviewed Shar Olson and Kevin Curry, but they had both left the group before Jeffrey developed the plan to kill the Averys. Yarbrough thought Jeffrey still planned to attack the temple the next year, 1989, and had no idea about his other plan. On the same day that Jeffrey was excommunicated from the church, October 10th, a double rainbow appeared over Kirtland. Jeffrey interpreted the rainbow to be one of the seven seals. In the Bible's book of Revelation, the opening of the seven seals triggers the apocalypse. Jeffrey thought this rainbow was the opening of the first seal. As a prophet, it was Jeffrey's job to open the rest of the seals. And according to Jeffrey's interpretation of the scriptures, God had put a time limit on it. Jeffrey now had six months to commit his blood sacrifice and endow himself with the power to take his followers before God, and only a year to open the other six seals. Somewhere in there, the plan to massacre the Kirtland Temple fell to the wayside. The six-month time limit for the blood sacrifice would be up in April of 1989. Jeffrey, now nearly 39, spent the next several months getting the rest of his followers used to the idea of murder. By the end of March 1989, everyone was on board. No one who was sinful could meet God, so Jeffrey told his followers that after the murder of the Averys, they would need to head out into the wilderness. There, free from society's evils, they would all become pure. So Jeffrey's followers prepared both for the murder of the Averys and their subsequent trek out into the wilderness. It was a busy spring. 
Like many narcissists, Jeffrey Lundgren had found a scapegoat. According to author and psychotherapist Andrea Matthews, narcissists believe themselves to be special and never at fault for any problems around them. They will frequently assign blame for their problems to a scapegoat so that they never have to take responsibility. Jeffrey had chosen the Avery family to be his scapegoat. They were wicked, and they were the reason he and his followers had yet to meet God. It seems like Jeffrey chose the Averys as scapegoats merely because he didn't like them. That's part of it, but there could be a deeper reason. According to forensic psychologist Dr. Nancy Schmidt-Gessling, it's possible that Dennis Avery in particular reminded Jeffrey of himself. Not the grandiose personality that Jeffrey took on, but the sad, pathetic person he felt like he was inside. Dennis possessed Jeffrey's own secret weaknesses. By getting rid of Dennis, Jeffrey might have felt like he was getting rid of those parts of himself. Amidst all the preparations, Jeffrey managed to recruit two more people into his cult. In March 1989, Jeffrey's old friend Keith Johnson, who had been the only witness at his wedding to Alice, arrived in Kirtland with his wife Kathy to follow Jeffrey. Jeffrey had been sending Keith letters for a while, and Keith had become convinced that Jeffrey was a prophet. At the end of March, Jeffrey told his group of a frightening new revelation— he had to sacrifice more people than just the Averys. God now told him that he had to kill 10 of his followers for his blood sacrifice, but there were only five Averys. This tactic of Jeffrey's was designed to sow fear among his followers, and it worked. His followers were terrified. They started to do everything they could to please Jeffrey and escape the same fate as the Averys. On April 4th of 1989, Jeffrey married Greg and Debbie and then Richard and Sharon the next day. They knew the marriages would make Jeffrey happy because he had told them they were true companions for each other. On April 10th, Jeffrey, Ron Luff, and Keith Johnson dug a hole in the barn where the 10 people would be buried. Jeffrey thought of Ron as strong and disciplined and had made him his right-hand man. Everyone in the group put their notices in at work, including the Averys. Jeffrey had told them about heading out into the wilderness, so there was no need to keep their jobs. And if no one was expecting the Averys at work, no one would report them missing. On Sunday, April 16th, Jeffrey got nervous about killing 10 people. Everyone disliked the Averys, but he might create discord by murdering well-liked followers. As usual, he consulted the scripture, and lo and behold, God told him that he now only had to sacrifice five people. God also told him that the next day, April 17, 1989, was the day that he should kill the Averys. Jeffrey was under pressure to act. By this point, he seemed to believe his own lies. He really was an immortal prophet. He later recollected, quote, I was going to set into action events that would make the world as we know it come to an end, events that would bring about the return of Jesus Christ, end quote. On the morning of April 17th, Greg Winship called the Red Roof Inn in Kirtland to make a reservation under Dennis Avery's name. If the police ever searched for the Averys, their record would show the inn as their last address, throwing them off the scent. At 6 p.m. that night, the Avery family arrived at the farmhouse for dinner. Jeffrey and his followers ate roast beef and mashed potatoes with the family they were about to kill. After they finished, Jeffrey had Cheryl Avery write a letter to her mother, explaining that they were headed out of town for a while 
not to worry. Alice left the farmhouse with the three younger Lundgren children, Jason, Kristen, and Caleb, so they wouldn't be around for the murders. Jeffrey warned her to call before returning. Jeffrey gathered Rob Luff, Greg Winship, Richard Brand, Danny Kraft, and his 18-year-old son Damon into his bedroom. They were his favorites, the ones he trusted to assist in the murders. He confirmed that they were ready, and then they all headed out to the barn. Dennis, Cheryl, Trina, Becky, and Karen Avery remained in the dining room, wondering where everyone had gone. Ron came back and told Dennis to follow him to the barn. Jeffrey wanted to discuss the wilderness preparations with him. Dennis and Ron walked to the barn, and when Dennis stepped inside, Ron prodded him with a stun gun, but it didn't knock him out. In pain and confusion, Dennis screamed out, quote, What are you doing, goddammit? This isn't necessary. End quote. The rest of the men easily overpowered Dennis and bound him with duct tape. They threw his body into the hole they had dug, and Jeffrey took out his gun, a 45. Jeffrey fired twice into Dennis's chest, then told the other men to gather around, saying, All right, everybody, come look at this. Come see what death is. Damon, who was still in high school, started crying at the sight of Dennis Avery lying at the bottom of the pit, covered in blood. Jeffrey sent him to act as the lookout during the rest of the murders. Next, Ron brought out Cheryl, telling her that Jeffrey needed to talk to her. When she entered the barn, the pit wasn't visible to her, so she didn't realize what had just happened to her husband. Ron explained that they needed to put duct tape around her hands, feet, and over her eyes. Cheryl had become habituated to following orders. Without questioning, she let herself be wrapped in tape and then placed in the pit. She had no idea that she was lying next to her dead husband. Then, Jeffrey shot her. He used a different gun than he had used on Dennis. He thought he was going to kill a lot more people in the apocalypse, so we wanted to experiment with different firearms in order to prepare. One by one, Ron brought out the Avery children from the living room of the house, telling them that their parents needed them. When each entered the barn, they were wrapped in duct tape like Cheryl, placed in the pit, and shot. Jeffrey showed no emotion when he pulled the trigger, besides mild enthusiasm for testing different types of guns. Karen Avery, the youngest, was only six years old. Ron Luff fetched her last, giving her a piggyback ride to the barn. By 11 p.m., all the Averys were lying dead at the bottom of the pit. Jeffrey told the other men to cover their bodies with lime to help them decompose faster. They covered the lime with a layer of rocks, then dirt, and covered the area with trash to hide the signs of digging. Afterward, Jeffrey, Alice, and Damon went to the Red Roof Inn and cleared the room of all the Averys' belongings. When they were done, Jeffrey called everyone back to the farmhouse for class. There, Jeffrey opened the Book of Mormon and read out loud, quote, Behold, the Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth righteous purposes, end quote. Many members of the group cried. Jeffrey took the opportunity to remind them that he could have killed ten of them that night, but instead had only killed five. Alice took on her normal supportive role, telling everyone, quote, you need to be thankful for this man. He's going to take you to see God. He did this for you, end quote. Class was dismissed. The members who lived at the house went to bed. The others went home. 
Jeffrey sorted through all of the Avery's belongings, picking out things that he liked and wanted to keep. He burned the rest in the fireplace. After this break, we'll explore the aftermath of the cult's murders. Now, back to the story. On April 17, 1989, members of the Kirtland cult had murdered five of their own, the Avery family, in cold blood. The very next day, April 18th, Chief Yarborough, six police officers, and 16 FBI agents headed over to the farm. The timing was purely coincidental. Law enforcement still believed that Jeffrey was planning to attack the Kirtland Temple on May 3, 1989, since he had backed out of attacking it the previous year. They questioned everyone. At first, the cult members were nervous, but they quickly realized that the police had no idea that the Averys were dead. They were completely focused on the temple takeover. The police asked to see Jeffrey's massive gun collection. He showed them, but all the weapons were obtained legally. The police and the FBI left the farmhouse with no new intelligence. In fact, Alice recalled that, quote, Jeffrey considered the fact that the FBI didn't know about the Averys a direct confirmation of the fact that he could do anything he wanted and do it right under their noses, end quote. Jeffrey's grandiose vision of himself was confirmed. He could even get away with murder. Nevertheless, he thought it would be a good idea to speed up the group's trek into the wilderness. He decided they would leave that day. Just before midnight on April 18, 1989, Jeffrey Lundgren and his followers left Kirtland and started driving east. There were now 24 of them, including the children. Jeffrey wasn't exactly sure where he wanted to go, but after a couple of days of driving, he saw a motel called The Highlander in the Canaan Valley of West Virginia. Jeffrey loved the movie The Highlander and had based his origin story as a prophet on it. In order to rationalize the obvious similarities between the movie and his own story, he claimed that God had given the screenwriters divine inspiration for the script. So clearly, the location of this motel was a sign that Jeffrey was supposed to settle nearby. On April 23, 1989, Jeffrey and his followers settled in a campsite surrounded by pine trees. It was public land and far from civilization. It was perfect. They set up their tents and even had electricity from a generator they brought with them. Jeffrey had a TV and a VCR set up in his tent, the largest in the campsite. He'd brought a couple dozen tapes with him, including a copy of The Highlander, of course. On May 3rd, Jeffrey's birthday, he left the camp for a while, telling his followers that he was hiking to the top of the nearest mountain to talk to God. When he returned a few hours later, he said that Jesus Christ had appeared to him in person. Jesus was apparently happy with the Avery's murder and had increased Jeffrey's powers. Jeffrey reported, quote, I have taken on Christ's name. I am not Jesus Christ, but because I have taken on the task that he commanded me to do, I can be like Jesus Christ, and he has given me the title of God of the whole earth, end quote. Jeffrey's followers were in awe. They were now in the presence of the divine. Jeffrey continued teaching his classes every night, and during the day, everyone would do chores and practice their understanding of chiasmus. But one person couldn't shake what had happened to the Averys. Dennis Patrick, not to be confused with Dennis Avery, 
fell into a depression, which frustrated both his wife, Tanya, and Jeffrey. Tanya felt like Dennis was abandoning her, while Jeffrey thought there was no need to be sad, saying, quote, why would he be upset that the wicked had been destroyed unless he too was under Satan's influence, end quote. When Dennis still couldn't shake his depression, Jeffrey turned to outright threats. One night in class, he asked the group, quote, how long would it take Dennis to die if I strapped him to a tree and shot him in the balls, end quote. Then Jeffrey took out his 45 and aimed it at Dennis's crotch. Dennis was forced to beg for his life. Jeffrey relented, but put Dennis under constant surveillance by the other men in the group. He also forbade Dennis to speak to his wife, Tanya, and daughter, Molly, and had them move into his own family's tent. But Jeffrey still wasn't done punishing Dennis. At the beginning of May, Jeffrey told Tanya, Dennis's wife, that he had feelings for her. Furthermore, he said he had consulted the scripture and found that Tanya was meant to be his second wife. Joseph Smith and other early Mormons in the 1800s practiced polygamy, though the church finally banned it in 1904. Some fundamentalist Mormon groups still practice polygamy, though the practice is illegal in the United States. At this point, Tanya thought that Jeffrey was a god. She was afraid of him, but also attracted to him. Despite her conflicted feelings, or maybe because of them, she started sleeping with Jeffrey in secret. It took about a month for Alice to figure out that Jeffrey was cheating on her. When she confronted him, Jeffrey told her that God was punishing her for arguing with him. Now that Alice had found out, Jeffrey announced to the group that Tanya was his second wife. He left out the fact that they had already been sleeping together. He also pointed his 45 at Dennis's head and then asked, do you have any problems with this, Dennis? Dennis replied, no, sir. But a few days later, when Jeffrey was supposed to officially consummate his relationship with Tanya, he claimed that he couldn't become sexually aroused by her. He told everyone in the group that it was because Tanya was so unattractive. Jeffrey told Tanya to move out of the tent. Although they remained married, Jeffrey announced that she was too full of sin to be close to him. But Tanya came to a different conclusion, later saying, he was tired of me and wanted someone else. Even though Alice was being humiliated by Jeffrey during this time, she remained his cheerleader in front of the group. She was abused by him, but in some ways, she seemed like a willing and eager participant in his plots. Oftentimes, she even reinforced his leadership when others doubted him. She also began self-medicating in different ways, both overeating and getting drunk almost every night. She began to gain weight rapidly. Cult members took detailed notes during Jeffrey's classes, and we can see Alice joining in at times. A follower's notes from July 22, 1989, quote Alice as saying, It's my observation you get into trouble when you start using your own thoughts. Always ask, what would Dad do? Remember, the followers referred to Jeffrey as Dad and Alice as Mom. Alice does seem to share some of Jeffrey's narcissism. According to Professor Preston Nee, narcissists hide their low self-esteem under a grandiose outer shell. So while Alice, on the one hand, felt that she deserved his abuse, on the other, she felt entitled to the status that she was accorded within the group as Jeffrey's wife. Perhaps it's that combination that led Alice to help with Jeffrey's next plan. In late July, Alice gathered the women of the group together, 
and told them that the reason none of the followers had seen God yet was because all the women were too filled with pride. They needed to be literally stripped of it. Incredibly, Jeffrey wanted the women to perform a strip tease in front of him. It was God's command. Tanya and Alice were both married to Jeffrey, so they didn't have to do the striptease. Because the other husbands in the group were worried about their wives, Jeffrey told them that Alice would be sitting next to him in the tent while the stripteases happened. He stressed that he didn't want to watch the stripteases. He had to. On August 14, 1989, Susie, Sharon, Debbie, and Kathy performed their stripteases for Jeffrey. Jeffrey sat behind a sheet that Alice held in front of him so he could masturbate while he watched them. Jeffrey was especially impressed with Kathy's performance. He decided that he wanted Kathy as his second wife, not Tanya. As always, he consulted the scriptures and through his special way of interpreting them, found that God wanted him to marry Kathy. At the beginning of September, Jeffrey announced to the group that Tanya had become too sinful to be married to him and that the scriptures had said that Kathy was his new wife. Kathy was happy about her new marriage. She said that she truly believed Jeffrey was God of the whole earth and that she was in love with him. Keith Johnson, Kathy's husband, was devastated. But Kathy told him, I want to be with Jeff. I am flesh of his flesh. The other men in the group began to doubt Jeffrey after this new proclamation, if only because they were concerned that Jeffrey would come after their wives next. When Alice found out, it was too much for her. In front of the whole group, she attacked Jeffrey, slapping him and yelling to his followers, here is your almighty God, you can have him. Meanwhile, back in Kirtland, Ohio, Chief Yarbrough had become aware of the group's disappearance. He knew of their plans to head into the wilderness, so he alerted the police in every national park to look out for the group's license plates. In June, Yarbrough got word from a game warden in West Virginia that the plates had been spotted. Yarbrough wanted to know what the group was up to, so he kept pressuring the police in West Virginia to fly over the group's campsite in a helicopter. Finally, on September 15, 1989, they did. The group was nervous about the low-flying helicopter, but Jeffrey saw it as an opportunity to get rid of Alice. He told her it was too dangerous for her and their kids to stay, and that she should go back to their parents' house in Missouri. It was also getting colder, and Jeffrey had realized that the group probably couldn't stay in West Virginia through the winter. A few days after the helicopter flyover, Alice and her three youngest children arrived back in Missouri, along with Susie Luff and her children, Jeffrey had asked Susie to leave, too, so that Ron wouldn't be worried that Susie would be the next wife on his list. Alice's mother, Donna, said, quote, The Alice who came home to see me wasn't my Alice. She was like a different person. End quote. Since the last time Donna saw her about a year ago, Alice had gained almost 100 pounds, had open sores on her face from picking at her skin, and seemed to be addicted to alcohol. Back at the campsite in West Virginia, Kathy was now sitting next to Jeffrey during his classes, where Alice used to sit. Just a couple of days after Alice left, the local police visited the camp in person. Jeffrey was away with Kathy, but they spoke to the rest of the followers. The group didn't seem to be breaking any laws, and no one had realized yet that the Averys were missing. Still, Jeffrey was nervous. At the beginning of October, he decided it was time to leave West Virginia. The group had run out of money, and no one was happy. 
they scrounged together enough cash for gas, and on October 15, 1989, after five months of camping, the entire group arrived back in Ohio on the verge of their own apocalypse. Kathy found a barn near Kirtland for most of the followers to live in. In a rare moment of good judgment, Alice decided to stay at her parents' home in Missouri, disgusted by Jeffrey and Kathy's relationship. Jeffrey would go visit Alice there sometimes. On October 31, 1989, Richard and Greg took advantage of his absence as an opportunity to leave the group. They were exhausted from living in the wilderness for months, broke and tired of the group's infighting. Debbie was heartbroken. Jeffrey had said Greg was her true companion, but he had just left. She missed him, and she missed her family, whom she hadn't seen in months. The next time Jeffrey made a visit to Alice, Debbie fled to a friend's house. She was out. On November 15, 1989, the police in West Virginia called Chief Yarborough to tell him the group was gone. Yarborough located most of the members back in Kirtland and called Kevin Curry to tell him the news. Kevin asked which of the members had gone to West Virginia, and Yarborough told him, including the names of the Averys. This made Kevin take pause. He didn't know the Averys were dead, but he was sure that Jeffrey wouldn't have brought them along to West Virginia because of how much he hated them. Yarborough realized that if the Averys weren't in West Virginia, that meant there hadn't been any record of them for months. He began making calls to try to track them down. Back at the barn, Jeffrey was becoming unhappy. It was cold, and his followers were annoying him. He decided it was time to ditch them. He gathered them around and told them he and Kathy were leaving. They'd be back in the spring when Jeffrey could pick up the search for how to open the rest of the seven seals. His followers were stunned. They'd all left their lives behind. Most of their marriages were destroyed, and now their leader was abandoning them. Even though Jeffrey had abandoned them, some of the members still believed in him. It took concentrated efforts from concerned family members to break Jeffrey's hold on them. According to Harvard psychology professor Dr. John G. Clark, this is typical of cult deprogramming. By December, only Danny Kraft still believed in Jeffrey's teachings. Jeffrey took him, Alice, Kathy, and his children to California with him. On December 14, 1989, they arrived at a cheap motel in San Diego. Meanwhile, the rest of the group members met in an apartment where Sharon and Debbie were living. They discussed the murder of the Averys. Most of them didn't want to go to the police. They were worried that they would be held responsible. But that didn't sit well with Keith. On December 31, 1989, he contacted an agent at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Chief Yarborough was getting ready for a New Year's Eve party when the ATF agent called him. The agent had interviewed Keith, but thought he was crazy. His story about a family buried in a barn was too outlandish to be real. The agent wanted Yarborough to go over to the barn, but just to prove that there wasn't anyone buried there. At 9 a.m. on January 3rd, after securing warrants, Yarborough and two of his deputies arrived at the barn. After many hours of clearing the trash inside, they were finally able to make their way to the spot that Keith had indicated. At 4 p.m., they found evidence of digging. At 7 p.m., firefighters arrived to help with the excavation. As soon as the trash was cleared, a horrible smell immediately filled the barn. The firefighters began digging up the floor, but had to work in shifts, some only a few minutes long, because the odor was so bad. 
At 9 p.m., the firefighters found the first body. By the next day, the bodies of all the Avery family members had been uncovered. The bodies of the three young girls were so broken down that they had to be transferred to sheets before they could be lifted out of the pit. As the deputy placed Trina's body onto the sheet, her scalp and braids slipped off her skull and into his hand. Yarbrough would remain haunted by what he saw and smelled in that barn for the rest of his life. The night of January 4th, 1990, Jeffrey learned about the discovery on the news while sitting in his motel room in San Diego. He quickly gathered everyone together and drove to a different motel called the Santa Fe, where Alice checked them in under fake names. Alice and Jeffrey decided to call Alice's mom, Donna, and ask her to come get the kids. They didn't want them to have to go on the run. The police were already tracking Donna's calls and swarmed her house before she could leave. They traced the number Jeffrey had called on to a payphone in San Diego. They staked it out. And when Damon made a follow-up call to his grandmother, they were able to follow him back to the motel. On Saturday, January 6, 1990, ATF agents arrested Jeffrey Lundgren on the sidewalk outside the hotel. Alice, Damon, and Kathy were arrested just after. The other members were quickly apprehended or surrendered themselves to police. Jeffrey would be charged with five counts of aggravated murder. La Tourette would seek the death penalty in his case. Alice was charged with five counts of aggravated murder and kidnapping. The kidnapping charge was added because the Averys had been restrained with duct tape before they were killed. Damon Lundgren, who was 18 by this time, Ron Luff and Danny Kraft were also charged with murder and kidnapping. The rest of the cult members accepted plea deals for their part in the murders. Only Keith Johnson was given immunity for his testimony because his information had led to Jeffrey Lundgren's arrest. On September 21, 1990, 40-year-old Jeffrey Lundgren was sentenced to death. After several failed appeals, Jeffrey was killed on October 24, 2006 by lethal injection at the age of 56. To the bitter end, Jeffrey clung to his belief that he was a prophet, perhaps even a god. All of Jeffrey's former followers now disavow him, and many have left the RLDS church as well. Still, the horrors of the Kirtland cult didn't end with Jeffrey's death. In March of 2010, Jeffrey's son, Caleb, was arrested for child abuse, accused of fracturing the skull of his three-month-old daughter. Caleb had grown up in a violent cult and mentally had never left. Perhaps Jeffrey's real legacy was the cycle of abuse he left behind, one that kept spinning long after his death. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Claire Epstein and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 